This program was originally posted on the Psychedelic Salon's first-run Patreon feed three months ago. As you know, I'm publishing new Salon 1.0 programs first on Patreon as a way to thank my supporters there. Additionally, for only $1 a month, they can also join me every Monday evening for a live edition of the Salon, where we sometimes jointly interview featured speakers whose conversations I also publish on the podcast from time to time. Now, here is the program from which you heard a preview three months ago. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'd like to begin today by thanking all of my supporters over on Patreon. As you know, that's where I'm now releasing these complete podcasts three months before I make them available on the original Salon RSS feeds. And while I was able to resist doing this for over 13 years now, well, I'm forced to admit that now that I'm in my late 70s, I'm going to need a little more income, in addition to the Social Security, if I'm going to be able to continue living a comfortable life. And uh, that's why I'm now publishing these podcasts in full on the first-run Patreon feed. Also, each Monday night, I host a live version of this salon for my supporters on Patreon. And tomorrow night, our guest will be Matt Palomary, who you've heard from several times here in the salon. And he'll be able to uh, answer all of your questions about ayahuasca, uh, about being a professional writer, and maybe he'll even share a few stories about some of our adventures in years gone by. Now, one other thing that you should know about is that early bird tickets for the Imagine Convergence Conference that will take place on Orcas Island this coming March, those tickets are now on sale. As you know, this conference is about presenting ideas for a future paradigm and will be a gathering of changemakers, intellectuals, innovators, and cultural creatives. And while I'm looking forward to uh, meeting some of the people that I've been following online for years now, people like Charles Eisenstein and Julia Butterfly Hill, well, I think that you will also enjoy meeting and visiting with some of the people that you've heard from here in the salon. In addition to myself and Bruce Damer, you'll also get to meet Paul Stamets and Dr. Charlie Grobe. Now, from my perspective, one of the things that makes this conference unique, in addition to the wide diversity of topics that will be covered, is that most of us are going to be living and eating together during the conference, and there won't be any distractions from a nearby big city. It's basically going to be an intimate, extended family gathering. Now, I realize that you may not be able to make it yourself due to work or other commitments, but have you thought about this? We are now entering the holiday season, and, well, a truly incredible gift that you could give to someone would be a ticket to this conference. Tickets are on sale with early bird pricing right now, and I'll link to their website in today's program notes, which you will find at psychedelicsalon.com. You know, if ever there was a time to connect with others who are as concerned about the future of our planet as we are, and who have positive attitudes about ways in which we can proceed into this unknown realm that lies just ahead, well, this is the place to be. I'll be there, and in fact, I'm bringing my oldest son. Hopefully, uh, we'll be able to meet you there as well. And uh, now for today's program, which is the fourth installment of a June 1989 Terrence McKenna workshop. And we'll be picking up where we left off last week. 
Now, in about 10 minutes, you're going to hear Terrence go on a roll when he gets talking about the eschaton and the end of history. Today, of course, that sounds quite insane, like the ranting of an end-of-the-world prophet of doom or something. But, as you listen to it, try to travel back in time to 1989. (laughs) It's going to be hard for some of you because you were really little kids then. But back then, when 2012 was still a distant glimmer on the horizon... Back then, before it became obvious that there would be no end-of-the-world 2012 event, well, then his rantings made a lot more sense. I'm not saying that many people bought into his predictions. In fact, Terrence often said that we shouldn't take him seriously. But as you listen to this rap, see if you can figure out just what it was that made the lectures of Terrence McKenna so compelling that here 30 years later we are still fascinated by them. So now here once again is Terence McKenna. The vegetable mind is reconnected to the human mind, which then is given the integrity to control the machine mind. Everything uh, epigenetic becomes hardwired. It becomes quasi-genetic. The whole thing is then seen as an expansion of the genetic repertoire by an infusion of epigenetic information and human beings as agents in that, co- in that process are released into some kind of dimension of their own making. Culture is a mirror of the mind. To this point, it's been very crude because to this point, we have been very crude, very incapable, only able to do low-definition models of mind. But with psychedelic drugs, with uh, dynamical uh, you know, mathematical theories at the frontiers of mathematics, with very high-speed computational engines, computer graphics, all of this stuff... A mirror of the mind is coming to be. Culture is more and more reflecting what we are. We are going to be the horrified witnesses of the revelation of the true nature of the human soul. We are going to find out what everybody else only wondered about, which is, who are we really? What will we do with ourselves when we are freed from the constraints of gravity energy, and yes, morality and politics. What are we when we begin to take off our cultural clothing? What kind of world will we build in the pure imagination? The engineering fantasies of those who would build spacecraft the size of Manhattan, hollow worlds with tilled fields and swaths of rainforests and savanna in their sides, that is the first step, the imaging of the mother world to prove that one cognizes the situation. But human beings are creatures of art. And whether this art is erected in massive structures in orbit around Jupiter or whether it is erected in some kind of fractal and syntactical electronic simulated space that is somehow quantum mechanically sustained, it doesn't matter. The point is the liniments of the imagination, the... uh, projection of human hope and creativity and the psychedelics 
are the way in which this has always been done up to now unaided. What we know of culture, what we have of culture, has come to us in this way. I mean, without psychedelics, we'd still be flipping over cow paddies on the plains of Africa looking for beetles. Uh, what, what we have been given through this symbiotic relationship is slow but widening access to hyperspace. We call it culture, but we are having difficulty maintaining the illusion that it's something we create as it moves faster and faster, clearly of its own accord. Something is loose on the surface of this planet that replicates information, that replicates it first genetically, then epigenetically through codes and signaling systems and languages. This thing is striving for some kind of self-reflection, some kind of self-definition. The motion of the continents are its playthings. The volcanism of the mid-Atlantic trench is, you know, a part of its breathing life. And we have been called forth into this process as catalysts of something. In the same way that you use bacteria to concentrate gold in the process of, of mining very gold-poor ore, the earth is using a species, the high, a higher primate species, to concentrate information, to concentrate symbolic structure in a part of the environment. Bees gather honey, human beings concentrate and gather and elaborate symbolic structures. Why? We don't know why, except that when we look into the psychedelic dimension, there seems to be this sense of a process, that the earth is not devoid of teleology, that there is some kind of purpose, something is being maximized, and great chances are being taken in order that this process of maximization be allowed to continue. Uh, history is, after all, it's like an epileptic fit on the geological scale. I mean, you just fall down and kick around and then you die, or you don't. You get up and you feel better. And this is the dilemma that we confront. We are in a fit, a 10,000-year fit of informational excrescence, code transfer, syntactical elaboration. Everything is feeding back into everything else. Some kind of super autocatalytic hypercycle is taking place in the realm of information, leading toward what I call um, the transcendental object at the end of history that in this higher dimensional space is the completion of this process as a kind of platonic fit accompli. And it is casting a lower dimensional shadow into process. In other words, history is the shock wave of some kind of eschatology. The presence of history 
is this very transient phenomena that occurs immediately surrounding the ingression of the transcendental object into ordinary space-time. And we sense this thing. It drives our religions. It fills our psychedelic visions. It inspires our messiahs, all of them. Because what people do is they, they section the cone they section the hyperdimensional object with the language skills of their historical time and place. And then they come back with a story about what it is. Buddha says this, Mohammed says this, Christ says this. These are lower dimensional slices of this transcendental object at the end of history. What it is cannot be known. It exceeds uh, description. It is translinguistic. It is the confounding of language. And yet language, in an effort to describe it, seeks greater and greater differentiation, greater and greater approximation to this object. So that then technological innovation, religious ontology, outbursts of poetry, painting, uh, dynamic personalities, all of these processes are lower dimensional slices, lower dimensional processes driven by the presence of this transcendental object. So then what shamanism is, is leaving the plane, leaving the plane and grokking this higher dimensional mapping of uh, what we call the here and now. And then you see into it to as great a degree as you can assimilate, to as great a degree as you can create the language for it. And that's why it's pressure on language, why the memes have to be artificially constructed, why I push with concepts like self-transforming machine elves. You know, that's a chunk of the place. We get it out over here and we let it go and watch it dance around and we all like it so we remember it. If the simile is too outlandish, it will be forgotten, and then it goes back to that other place. So the effort is to sort of try and burst the dam of hyperdimensional language. This is another way of thinking of the transcendental object. You see, the notion is a simple one. It's that if the word can be made flesh, the flesh can be made word. That's it. That there is some kind of emanation into phenomenal existence. The word becomes flesh. There are the declensions of being that you get in Hindu philosophy and, you know, the tattvas and all of this stuff. The big bang, the condensation, the appearance of phenomenal beings, of a phenomenal existence. And then the appearance of self-reflecting consciousness, which constitutes the turning point. And then the epigenetic coding begins of what has previously been genetic, and everything begins to funnel toward this teleological omega point. And a few tens of thousands of years before the omega point is reached, there is a stirring in the primates. They feel the eerie nearness of the thing 
and this eerie feeling of nearness of the other slowly acts as a vector on the animal mind and points it toward the transcendence and sexuality and the hallucinogenic plants and all this stuff feed into this thing and we begin the quest. We don't even know that we've begun the quest, but the disruption of the unquestioning animal here and nowness is finished. That's over. And the, the itch must be scratched. The restlessness comes in and we begin to elaborate culture. Certain things please us, certain things do not. We begin to have a notion of an ideal. We don't know where this notion of an ideal comes from. Well, it's coming from this intuited, higher-dimensional mapping of this object, which is acting like an enormous attractor, throwing out a field of attraction that reaches out a million years and begins to pull us toward it. And now we're very near this thing. The whole last thousand years has been just a flirtation with the, you know, this wild dance with the coming and going of the mystery. I mean, people throw up Gothic cathedrals, then they tear them down, then we have alchemy, then science trashes that. All of this stuff, this frantic elaboration of ideas indicates that we are now in the ineluctable and unbreakable grip of this huge attractor. And as it pulls us toward it, it compresses information, it compresses the phenomenon of culture, it speeds things up. You see, uh, history is a kind of psychedelic trip. That's what it is. It's the big trip. And what we're approaching, you know, is the place where the previous structures that have been able to maintain a metaphor as the pressure of this thing built in the collective psyche are going to suffer meltdown. And we're just going to have to admit, you know, yes, the earth has been invaded by archangels. Pentagon sources now confirm, uh, you know, it's the end of the world, basically. But the world that ends is... uh, this lower dimensional slice. Somehow there is a subsuming into this higher dimensional object. All time on this planet flows toward this one point. This is, I grant you, a peculiar idea, but to show you how how language, culture, and media work on ideas to make something seem odd or ordinary... Let's look at the ordinary version of reality that straight people profess. Straight people believe uh, uh, white, Anglo-Saxon, well-educated science types believe that the universe began with what is called the Big Bang. What this is, is you are asked to believe that the entire universe sprang from nothing in a single instant. This is the scientific explanation of where the universe came from. It sprang from nothing in a single instant and and was originally an object so dense that it was smaller than the inner orbit of the electron around an atomic nucleus. 
And out of that eensy, beensy, very highly energetic, extremely heavy... I mean, in other words, this has got to be a fairy tale. I mean, if, if you can't prove it, it certainly is a fairy tale. I mean, it just piles one preposterous notion on another in an effort to solve all intellectual problems in one stroke of suspension of disbelief. Well, what I'm proposing is also a singularity, a singularity where everything is pulled into a kind of ultimately complexified, super-dense state of connectedness. But the... the singularity that I propose emerges out of a very complex situation, i.e. the evolving cosmos as we know it, which as we see has many states of chemistry, energy levels ranging from that of quasar to flashlight battery, um, so forth and so on. It seems more likely to me that a singularity would emerge out of a background of complex event systems than that a singularity would emerge out of absolute primal nothingness. And uh, so when you look at these two theories, you know, you can pick uh, whichever one suits your aesthetic. But the notion that one is preposterous and the other the stuff of uh, reason and empiricism is just nonsense. At every end of the scale, we are surrounded by myth. And so uh, I think that this kind of a singularity solves a lot of problems for us. It explains the evolutionary thrust of development on this planet. It locates human history in nature as a force that has been called out of nature by natural processes on the planet. It reassigns human beings a role in the unfolding of the planet other than its simple flat-out rape and destruction. Uh, And it places ahead of us an object of hope because the transcendental object that is doing this is uh, pleasant to experience. I mean, I don't want to make a moral judgment on it, but it is, uh, you know, God's love or something like that. It is real. And I think this is what history moves toward. This is the intuition of religion that is so severely flawed and compromised by the the, uh, limitations of religion and the deals that it cuts. Well, maybe we should stop for a couple of minutes and stretch and then have questions. It doesn't make sense to you. It doesn't make sense, period, probably. So are there questions, comments, uh, clarification? Yes. I wanted to ask you on your uh, DMT experience that you described. Um, the way you were describing it, it was sounded as if other people had experienced similar types of beings as you had, or was that only your personal experience No, I would say I get pretty good results. Of the people I have been able to turn on, I would say half get uh, elves and entities. Uh, I don't take responsibility. Uh, you can't know what's going on. I mean, people botch it. They don't do enough. They do it on grass. They don't... It wasn't made right. 
all these parameters, but people that I've been able to satisfy myself that it was done right, about half get it. And other, not everyone gets it as strongly. It seems to be a kind of archetype through which you cut deeper and deeper, and the deeper you go, the stranger it gets, but it keeps its character. For instance, I, I saw one woman take DMT, and she it looked to me like a sub-threshold dose. It looked to me like an insufficient dose. One way you can tell that people are, in fact, getting a sufficient dose is that there will be rapid eye movement under the eyelids. It's because they're watching all this crazy stuff. If you don't see their, eyelid, their rapid eye movement happening, then you have reason to wonder if they actually did enough. Well, so I didn't think this woman got quite enough. So she came down and she said it was, uh, it was the saddest carnival in the world. It was a sad carnival. And this is the, it's the circus. It has something to do with the circus. The circus is the archetype of DMT. What do we have in the circus? Well, we have lions and tigers and beautiful women and slapstick comedy, but an aura of darkness. I mean, the circus, if any of you have seen Les Enfants du Paradis, in fact, I've had LSD trips which were entirely about that movie and replaying it in my head and trying to understand it. The archetype of the circus, this is why Fellini uses this. God, there are scenes in Giulietta di Spiri where she opens the triangular door and the burning bed is there. I mean, this, these scenes are drenched with this tryptamine kind of consciousness. Other people say of DMT, it's, it's, there are clowns. It's about clowns. Well, these are progressive approaches to the self-transforming machine elves. Maybe I've done it more, or maybe I just have some power of observation, but I saw behind the mask of the clown, and behind the mask of the meme, and behind the mask of the marionette, and behind the robot mask, to more of what I feel must be the essence of the thing, because it was more replete with strangeness. It was more like, you know, we're letting you see, we're lifting the veil. So, uh, the circus, does that do it for you? <laughs> what about the relationship between uh, mushrooms and High-dose mushroom psilocybin is 5-hydroxy-NN-dimethyltryptamine. DMT is NN-dimethyltryptamine. I'm not saying that psilocybin becomes DMT as it crosses the blood-brain barrier. There seems to be a problem there, which Shulgin explained to me, but I didn't quite understand it. But it's something very, very close to DMT. And at the peak of a high-dose mushroom trip, you can come into a place where you say, I cannot tell the difference. This looks like DMT to me for sure. But instead of it appearing with crackling immediacy 15 seconds after you lay down the pipe, 
you work your way there over an hour and a half with breath control in absolute silent darkness. Ayahuasca, same thing. Ayahuasca, sufficiently pushed, will usher into this place that is snap, crackle, pop land, you know? I mean, just that electric immediacy. But these are high doses. But the same high doses in Five grams and up. Five dried grams and up. <laughs> I don't. I feel that if you take more than ten grams, your powers of repertage will be damaged, and you're useless to the rest of us. So, I don't advocate more than that. Ten grams is a hell of a wallop. I mean, I don't advocate that. Only if you've taken five and were bored to death, you know. But but uh, it, it's not about, you know, just how much can you bolt down. I, I mean, a friend of mine says his goal with mushrooms each time he takes them is to stand more of it. And you can have this relationship to it, you know, because it does veil itself. If all you can handle are leprechauns, it won't push too far beyond that. But if it pours on leprechauns and you scream for more, it can get rid of leprechauns and give you more. I mean, I have had you know conversations with it where I would say, okay, we've been looking at Baroque altarpieces or we've been looking at Kandinsky's later period, the mushroom and I, it's showing me this stuff. And so then I say, well, uh, you know, what turns you on? Be a bit more yourself. Well, God, then it just begins to migrate. And I say, okay, that's enough more yourself. Because it requested to reveal its inner nature, it will begin to do so until you just say, you know, I'm a human being. Stop that. This is as much as I feel capable of handling of your, uh, of your uh, self-image. But this is all directly related to what you were telling us before in terms of the, uh, the central sphere. I, yes. Um, this transcendental object probably is more like a being than an object. I just call it a transcendental object to keep those issues out of it when we try and think of it as an attractor. No, it's a mind. It's an organizing intellect. It is the mind. It's probably the mind that you call your mind is probably a small chunk of this mind. Uh, Yes, when you go into these high-dose places, you are seeing a local map of this thing toward which all creation moves. At least this is my take on it. How do you feel emotionally about that? When you, when you see the, the transcendental object? Well, it makes you weep. I mean, it just dissolves you emotionally. It is the peace which passeth understanding. This is the burning bush. This is, yes, grace. This is the, the, it's the descent of the Holy Spirit. It's all of those things. Uh, it's tremendously emotionally uh, touching because 
there is an absolute confirmation of unity, you know? And also, you are seeing it. You are confirming that it exists. I mean, your whole being is thrilled. You say, it exists. It exists. It's not a matter of conjecture or faith or it exists. Uh, This is very close to the religious ecstasis of Mother Teresa or Hildegard von Bingen or Meister Eckhart or Thomas Traherne or any of those folks, except that they were apparently exceptional personalities who achieved this after tremendous self-discipline and acts of great uh, uh, you know, spiritual control. It's a birthright, though, Why should it be restricted to mystics? It belongs to all of us. It is, you know, an essential part of yourself. You would no more want to miss out on this than you would want to miss out on sex or ice cream or, you know, anything that makes life worth living. This informs and empowers and enriches existence. Uh, The 20th century model is that life is a desert. You know, man has been abandoned by God, life is a desert, all ethics are provisional, all values are culture-bound, just bum, 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 rap. This is the modern situation, everything is completely disensouled and dead and pointless, and then you discover, you know, that this is just a condition of cultural ennui, a state of mind that uh, the mystery is a a right. And, you know, I don't think it's something to be done once or twice in a lifetime. I I don't think we should run it into the ground. I think every time you take a psychedelic, you should take enough that it frightens you, that you you should never grow confident in its presence. It will destroy you. That is the one thing it will not tolerate is... uh, cockiness I mean it just takes that funny word huh it just takes that and will not put up with it uh, because it's a sin against the goddess obviously it's the sin of hubris it's the sin of pride other comments you were going to talk about the dangerous the danger Well, the drugs I advocate I regard as not dangerous uh, unless recklessly used. Psychedelics are not dangerous. We'd love to convince ourselves they were dangerous. Then there would be no reason to take them. the danger to my mind is and this is my personal opinion and you now come up against who I am and my hang-ups what I always fear is madness not death death you know probably wouldn't hurt my reputation at all but madness Madness would be a disgrace at this point. (laughs) An embarrassment, yes, how embarrassing. Uh, 
So, uh, but I, I think you should gain confidence and, and uh, you know, do it with a sitter. I don't like the term guide because these guides know nothing, you know, but a sitter is somebody who's together enough to, you know, call an ambulance or just calm you down, basically. Uh, somebody told me a wonderful story, which you should know because you might, you know, draw comfort from it. Uh, Sky was very, pretty experienced. He'd taken fairly high doses of mushrooms before, and he took a six-gram dose on a Saturday evening in his apartment in L.A. And um, this heart thing began to develop that he identified as a fibrillation or something. So he tried to hold it back and keep not notice and not and it kept getting stronger and strong. It never lets you do that, by the way, the not noticing. It's a paradox. You didn't take this to not notice. So uh, eventually he becomes thoroughly alarmed and he tries to call a couple of his friends. Well, it's Saturday night. Nobody's home. So then just this tremendous sense of abandonment settles over this guy. His friends aren't there when he needs them. He's going to die here in his apartment and be found days later, so forth and so on. And he gets this ball rolling, see. <laughs> so finally he despairs. He's a psychotherapist, an MD, blah, blah, everything. He despairs. He calls 911. <laughs> So they come, they get him, they rush him to the hospital, um, they put him in a ward, they, and he, by the time all this has happened, and he's gotten all this attention, and probably a little second all, uh, he's feeling pretty good about it all. So then he says to the guy on duty, he says, uh, I, I feel like I have to tell you, I, I took psilocybin mushrooms, uh, do you think that that brought this on? <laughs> and the guy said, uh, no, you had an anxiety attack. We get people with this all the time who don't know anything about psychedelic drugs. <laughs> so, you know, it, it isn't the drug you have to worry about, it's yourself. You have to discipline your hind brain. You have to be able to say, listen, shut up! We're going to come through this. Just shut up about it. Because it's saying, but don't you think we should call somebody? And, but, and, uh, <laughs> um, we shouldn't treat it with such levity because it is a serious issue. I mean, I've been in many circumstances where vital signs seem to have fallen so low in my own perception that I just was saying to myself, keep breathing, keep looking, keep breathing, keep looking. And I felt, you know, that we, I was in a submarine five and a half miles down. Easy does it through here. Breath, attention, breath attention because you have the feeling that if you don't keep your attention on your breath you will simply stop breathing well now it's interesting people who don't worry much about psychedelics you tell them a story like that and they say well 
isn't that the bit that you take these drugs and you think you're dying and then you get straight and then you don't die and then you're really happy? Isn't that what it's supposed to do? I thought that was what it was about. Well, in fact, if you go back into the literature in the 1960s, the Tibetan Book of the Dead crowd was saying, you will be flung from hell to paradise and back again on about a 40-minute schedule for several hours. And they prepared themselves for these bad trip situations by anticipating it. And I, I don't really think there's that much to it. I think your mind is very fragile in that state. And, you know, a bad thought quickly becomes a cascade. And you have to know how to, dis- how to stop these cascades. A very practical technique that I use is uh, I take a hit of cannabis because that seems to shake up the deck again. So, you know, if I'm having these visions and it's orchids and ruins and machines and I'm grooving this and then suddenly it becomes about meat and surgery and excrement and this and that, and then I just say, you know, it's time for a J. <laughs> Now, Stan Groff would say you should go through these things and that this is important for your uh, process. But, you know, I'm squeamish uh, and, and, uh, and enjoy steering it. Uh, also, it's good to be informed, to know when you get in there, how dangerous is this drug and how much did I take? And if you know that you took 15 milligrams of psilocybin and you know that the LD50 of psilocybin is some astronomical figure, well, then you can tell yourself this cheerful little story about how you can't possibly die because you took so little. But the main thing is it teaches you discipline. And, uh, you know, thinking you're going to die at least for me, is not all that rare. I mean, if somebody invites me to go sailing with them on the bay on a Sunday afternoon, at least twice in the afternoon, I will sign off completely and just assume that's it, you know. Maybe I'm a little paranoid, you know, or maybe I have crazy friends, but... uh, uh, Terrence, we were talking at lunch about... Um, extending the feeling, the connection that you have during the trip in straight life. I'm not verbalizing this very well, but do you feel that after years of experiencing psilocybin that you can touch that feeling at uh, straight times? You can hear the logos, you can get the information. Well, I can't hear the logos in the sense well not always but I can invoke it I mean I have a sense of it it's where I talk from Uh, but my public career gives me so much permission to spend time with this stuff I mean and I think about it all the time I mean I'm I image everything 
it's just cognitive activity is all that the psychedelic experience is. It's accelerated cognitive activity. So if you run around, I urge people to think. It's sort of an anti-several other positions position. But I think it's good to think. I don't preach stilling the mind or any of that stuff. I think that the glory of human beings is cognition. And that if you paint, if you sculpt, if you write, if you sing, if you dance, if you weave, if you act, if you uh, cook, whatever we do, uh, cognition can follow through it. And that, you know, what psychedelics lead to is appropriate activity. Appropriate activity is the way to be straight with the psychedelic vision. Do what is appropriate and it will resonate with the vision because the vision is a vision of what is appropriate. And then if you have to do terribly inappropriate things, you know, if you contact the Logos on Saturday night and go back to designing the stealth bomber on Monday morning, there's going to be, it's going to be difficult to act psychedelically because that is not appropriate behavior. Appropriate behavior is a self-explanatory concept. Everybody knows what that is. Yes, you had a question. Yeah. Ram Das talks about uh, his gurus like in India, like taking ten times the dose of LSD that normally would turn them on and nothing happened. As if uh, the thought being that they're always in that state. What, what do you feel about that? No, the thought is that they will never attain this state. <laughs> <laughs> Well, by being beastly little priesties, basically. No, no, I mean... (laughs) I, I regard all organized religion as a plot against free thought. Um... It just, because you see, everything in the world seeks to disempower direct experience. And that is obscene. We mustn't let that happen. So these people who have techniques and lineages and ashrams and all of this stuff, uh, the first million years of religion was psychedelic. And then when these dominator societies got going, they said, well, we need religion, but we need religion at 15% power. These orgies bust up the community rhythm. Nobody wants to get up in the morning to go hoe the fields. Uh, Suddenly, not psychedelic plants, but agriculture, corn, tammuz, all of this comes into play. Food plants gain importance in agriculture. It's really the nomadic pastoralists that's, and the hunter-gatherers who seem to be able to sustain the psychedelic lifestyle. Your question touches on this issue that always comes up in these things. Is there another way to get there? And is this the same thing that the geishis and roshis and rishis and gurus and babajis are talking about. I've spent a lot of time on this question and I can't yet convince myself that it's the same thing. They're too... They betray themselves. They're too blasé. This is the problem with all of these other paths. 
they don't raise their voice to tell you how weird it is. I mean, I've never heard someone say about yoga, this is really weird. Do this and you will feel weird and you'll see weird things and bizarre thoughts. No, they say, you know, do this and energy will rise. And the thing which pervades the psychedelic experience is this sense of weird, sense of closeness to a bizarre secret of some sort. I don't even claim that the psychedelic experience should be put on the spectrum of spiritual experience, somewhere between moral rectitude and Buddha. You may be able to pass from moral rectitude to Buddha and never get near the psychedelic experience. Uh, that's one of the reasons Flattery's book about Haoma is so fascinating, because he makes the point about Iranian religion that it's thoroughly matter-of-fact about this other dimension. It doesn't call it higher or lower. It doesn't say you're a better person if you can go there. It just says that it's there. And that, to me, is more characteristic of, uh, of the psychedelic approach. I'm puzzled by the relationship to moral goodness and to spiritual advancement that the psychedelic experience has, it does seem to bring to the people who immerse themselves in it, like the shamans of the Amazon, a certain kind of moral suasion. Their impressive personalities. The good ones won't screw you. Um, the bad ones will. Uh, but once you find a good one and follow him around for a few months or so, you become quite convinced that this guy is a morally superior human being in all of his dealings with people. This guy doesn't lose the thread. He acts from a very real place. But um, I think just in the presence of so much transcendental wonder one is inspired to try and get one's act together. And also, I think that if you are a quote-unquote bad person, your unconscious mind will attack you in the psychedelic state. This is why these certain kinds of personalities know instinctively that they shouldn't get near it. And, and, this, uh, and so they stay away from it. It doesn't mean that if you take this stuff, you're a great person. All it means is that you can put up with what a bum you are when seen through that lens. In other words, I mean, it humbles everybody. It really rubs your nose in it, and it doesn't let you escape. And, you know, if you're willing to put up with that, then there's also riches. But I don't think any technique... Uh, or any religious ontology is in possession of a technique that can, can carry us close, anywhere close to this place. If they could, we would know about it. In the back. Yeah. Do you have any ideas about other forms of life being sensitive to the same sort of realm that you describe from a human standpoint? Say, for instance, insects or other beings? Well, insects are bizarre, especially social insects, and trying to imagine 
you know, in a way, a social insect hive is a kind of uh, living brain. I mean, it is a loosely pheromonally connected nervous system that can have millions of individuals in it. Uh, as far as speculating, I mean, if the depths of the human mind are unrecognizable to me, I don't know what I would make of the ontology of a termite hive. Uh, but how about a horse or a cow? You mean these forms of animal awareness? I don't know. I think that there's some premium has to... You have to be able to freely code. Now, certain animals can freely code to a degree. Then we begin to have to define freedom. Monkeys have a degree of freedom in their coding. The octopi have a greater freedom in coding than almost any other species. And I, you've probably heard me talk about octopi as an example in nature of a visibly beheld linguistic modality because octopi communicate their, inner, their internal states by changing the colors and the surfaces and the display of their skin so that in a sense the surface of an octopus is what it's thinking. It is a visual manifestation of its internal processes. Its thoughts appear as pictures on its skin, which other octopi can read. Now, this is a form of free coding that approaches or exceeds our own, and in fact might provide a model for a future evolutionary developments uh, in human language. We'll, I'll talk more about that since, in the face of it, it's a puzzling statement. Um, why don't we knock off for today and uh, if anybody needs any of this we can help them out it's 10 of 6 we'll uh, meet here at 8 o'clock tonight you're listening to the Psychedelic Salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time I think that the first thing from this talk that I should comment on is the part where Terence said, and I quote, This transcendental object probably is more like a being than an object. I just call it a transcendental object to keep those issues out of it when we try to think of it as an attractor. No, it's a mind. It's an organizing intellecty. It is the mind. It's probably the mind that you call your mind. <laughs> wow, <laughs> I'm sure that I've never heard him say this before, but if you know of an instance where he said it before, I really would like to know about it. For me, uh, this changes his end-of-time ideas completely, because, well, at least to me, there is a huge difference between that attractor being a thing and an entity. Yeah, well, maybe we can get Matt Palomary to comment on this tomorrow night in the Psychedelic Salon Live, because uh, for sure, this is something I would like to explore with uh, you and everybody else a little bit further in the months ahead. Now, I'm wondering if I'm also the only one who thought of Teilhard de Chardin's important book, The Phenomena of Man, when Terence was talking about the approach of an omega point. Of course, that was the essential takeaway from that book. 
And I know that Terrence was uh, very familiar with it because the last time that I spoke with him was at the time when I was writing The Spirit of the Internet, which is based on Teilhard's book. And in our discussion about my book, it was obvious that Terrence had thought a great deal about some of the ideas that were presented there. Also, there were several other ideas that Terrence floated in this talk that I think are worthy of further discussion on our live Monday night salon that's available via Patreon for only a dollar a month. I'm not sure if we'll get to uh, any of them tomorrow night because our guest will be Matt Palomary, and I suspect that our fellow saloners already have, well, they probably have enough questions to keep them really busy. But here are a couple of Terrence's quotes from this talk that I think we can have some fun discussing in the weeks ahead. And I quote, What psychedelics lead to is appropriate activity. Appropriate activity is the way to be straight with the psychedelic vision. Unquote. The next one is, I regard all organized religion as a plot against free thought. <laughs> End quote. I want to talk about that one. And finally, I quote, The thing which pervades the psychedelic experience is this sense of weird, sense of closeness to a bizarre secret of some sort. I don't even claim that the psychedelic experience should be put on the spectrum of spiritual experience, somewhere between moral rectitude and Buddha, end quote. <laughs> well, I suspect that those little quotes should be able to stir up some interesting conversations in the weeks ahead, and I'm looking forward to participating in them with you. But for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.